I've been looking again lately at Inner Work, a a book by the well-known Jungian analyst and author Robert Johnson. In his introduction, Johnson speaks directly to how easily modern men and women have dismissed spiritual revelation as relevant to the pursuit of knowledge and to their own inner development. Johnson, who equates our dislocation from consciousness with a dislocation from our own souls, a disconnection from the life of the Spirit, writes this, The disaster that has overtaken the modern world is the complete splitting off of the conscious mind from its roots in the unconscious. All the forms of interaction with the unconscious that nourished our ancestors, dream, vision, ritual, and religious experience, are largely lost to us. Dismissed by the modern mind as primitive or superstitious, thus in our pride and hubris, in our faith in our unassailable reason, we cut ourselves off from our origins in the unconscious and from the deepest parts of ourselves. Revelation is undoubtedly one of those forms which nourished our ancestors and rooted them in the unconscious, rooted them in the life of mind, heart, soul, and spirit. Literally, revelation simply means an unveiling, the lifting of a metaphorical or literal covering, so that something formerly hidden or concealed is disclosed, much like a statue or painting is unveiled, its covering removed for public viewing. The word disclosed itself is significant, and should not be confused with the word discovery. The discovery and disclosure of knowledge are not at all the same thing. I discover something myself, but I disclose what I have discovered to another. Theologically, revelation is characterized or categorized uh, in a couple of ways. General revelation refers to the knowledge of God and spiritual matters, which can be discovered through such means as the observation of nature, or by philosophical thought or reason, or even conscience. Natural revelation, which is usually considered as virtually synonymous with general revelation, is truth about God that can be discerned by looking at the world around us and within ourselves. So in the book of Romans, St. Paul says that when we look, when we really look with any openness whatsoever at the created order, it is impossible not to glimpse something, to see something of the presence, power, and wonder, and beauty of God. Or the psalmist, writing hundreds of years before Paul, says that when he looked into the night sky, observed the moon and stars and the courses of planets, he was overwhelmed by the sense of how God could care for one so small as himself. That's general or natural revelation. 
is an experience people have all the time. For example, when they look into the night sky and wonder at the moon, or hike in Yosemite, walk on the beach at sunset, or look out over the Grand Canyon. Special revelation is knowledge of God, which comes directly from God and is recorded in Scripture. The content of special revelation is knowledge that we could not know unless God disclosed it to us directly. We might have a knowledge of a particular event that occurred, say, like the Exodus. But special revelation gives us its meaning. Ultimately, only God can disclose God. Historically, the tendency has been especially among conservative believers, to equate divine revelation with biblical information of almost every sort, including such things as the Old Testament list of the ascension of the kings of Israel and Judah, or matters such as the genealogy of Joseph. Their idea being that we have the genealogy of Joseph, for example, because it was divinely revealed rather than because Joseph's family knew their own ancestral history. Or we have list of kings, and when they ascended the throne, not because, like all kingdoms, Judah and Israel kept records of such matters, but because, unlike any other nation, God wanted them to have a supernaturally revealed history of their respective monarchies. The Council of Trent, which meant uh, 1545 to 1563 defined the whole body of scripture as well as a large body of unwritten tradition as revealed truth given by the dictation of the Holy Spirit. In fact, by the late Middle Ages, the number of things considered to be revealed by God came to be so numerous and so varied that the complaint was that remembering them all taxed the capacity of human memory. Unfortunately, this is a sort of thinking that has been extended into the 21st century by modern American fundamentalism, and that, that leaves thinking people both amused and bemused, and is just led to a lot of silliness. I, I love the story of the man who in the early years of the U.S. space program insisted, in spite of the photographs of a round earth taken from space, that the earth is flat. The Bible, he pointed out, speaks of God gathering his people from the four corners of the earth. If the earth has four corners, he went on, it is flat. What, what he was saying is that scripture, read with wacky literalness, constitutes special or divine revelation. Nor are matters improved when PhD modernists, scholars who are often just as fundamentalists of a different kind, argue using the same literalist mindset as conservative fundamentalists. 
that Scripture cannot possibly be divine revelation because there are passages which seem to suggest that the universe is a structure with three stories supported by pillars. It seems fairly obvious to me that a critical mistake made by both ultra-conservative believers and sophisticated non-believers is in thinking that Revelation is about factual data, raw information. However, Scripture is not primarily about information. It is about God. The Bible does certainly contain historical information, and it does include doctrine, but its purpose is not to convey a body of information or to function as the infallible communication of doctrine. John Bailey's assertion cannot be repeated too often. Bailey said, what we must constantly keep at some level of awareness in reflecting on the nature of revelation is that it is entirely inadequate to think of revelation as information, concepts, doctrines, or formulas which God has conveyed to us. We must rather keep in mind at all times that revelation is God disclosing and giving himself to us. One of the first serious intellectual criticisms I heard of the Christian faith in an undergraduate philosophy class had to do with the Roman Catholic Church's persecution of Galileo for his heliocentric theory. The realization that the sun is the center of our solar system rather than the earth and that the earth therefore revolves around the sun rather than the sun around the earth. Ecclesiastical officials determined that Galileo's theory contradicted divine revelation. The Bible, according to their literal interpretation, said that the earth was the center of the universe. Perhaps, however, the best response I've ever read was given by the French existential novelist Albert Camus. He wrote, It does not matter much whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun around the earth. The only really serious question being whether either way our life on earth is worth living. John Bailey noted and uh, that this illustrates the, the distinction between subsidiary and ultimate concerns. Unlike Bart Ehrman, I don't really care much whether it was the priest Ahimelech or Avatar that gave the fleeing David and his band of warriors the bread of the presence to eat. I do not care uh, about that. I do care. I am ultimately concerned with what that incident says about the compassion uh, of God and about what is required to live a meaningful life. 
In special revelation, God is known, revealed, or disclosed through God's divine acts. God speaks through events occurring in human history. For example, God calls Abraham and Sarah to leave their prosperous, secure, and predictable life in Mesopotamia and to become nomadic strangers, migrants, in a distant land where life is far from predictable. And so they go, taking their nephew Lot and his family, their retainers and servants, and herders with them, and a great caravan of people, camels, horses, cattle, sheep, goats, and oxen. Abraham and Sarah are people of visions and dreams in which they believe God speaks to them, and that what they hear, what is revealed to Abraham and Sarah, and all those through them with them, in this strange journey, this event that in an important sense encompasses virtually their entire adult life, is that the essential thing asked of them is complete and absolute trust. And the more Abraham and Sarah trust God, the more intimately they know God until in the end. It is said that because of this trust, because of their faith, they become friends of God. I can look at any biblical event from this perspective, and it will reveal something that is always higher and deeper than I'm able to go. Here is a further observation. Scripture, the Bible, is not itself revelation. It is the witness to revelatory events. Let me say that again. Scripture, the Bible, is not itself revelation. It is the witness to revelatory events. Scripture expresses the response of human witnesses to divine events, not a miraculous divine dictation. The doctrines and proposition of the Bible, which Christians believe to be true and authoritative, are there, in a sense, only because of God's self-revelation. The fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John makes clear this distinction between a revelation or self-disclosure of God and its explanation in Scripture. There, Jesus says this to his relentless, relentless and uh, hostile attackers. He says to them, You study the Scriptures diligently, analyzing them in meticulous detail, because you think that in them you will find the secret of eternal life. But this, <clears throat> but these very scriptures tell you about and point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. As men and women have heard God speaking in specific and concrete events, then 
they have known God and believed. Writing this experience or encounter down or inscripturating it is part of the process of making Revelation historical. The biblical writers do not speak to us of their own personal and private insights or opinions or fancies. Rather, they speak of their encounter with the living God and of how God is revealed in concrete acts, how God is has been revealed in that encounter. The Bible, then, is essentially the story of the acts of God. So Psalm 44, we have heard with our ears, O God, and our fathers and mothers have told us of the work you did in their days, in the times of old. Or Psalm 77, I will remember the mighty acts of the Lord. I will meditate on the works of God and talk of what God has done. I find it significant that outside of Israel, most ancient sacred books are composed of oracles and the communication of what are considered timeless truths. But the Bible is mainly a record of what God has done. This, in fact, is a real difference between the Gnostic documents of Nag Hammadi and the canonical Gospels. It claims to tell the things Jesus said, in the, the Nag Hammadi claims to tell the things that Jesus said. The Gospels tell what Jesus said in the context of what he did, and that gives them their power and meaning. The men and the women of the Old Testament were acutely conscious of historical events as revelatory in nature. The call and journey of Abraham and Sarah, the exodus, the giving of the law of Moses, the division of the kingdom, the exile, the return from captivity, rebuilding the temple, and the liberating triumph of the Maccabees over Israel's cruel oppressors. Each event discloses not merely facts or information about God, but is an I-Thou encounter between God and the people. Each event shapes and forms them, forges their identity. And each event is relevant, not simply to a single individual, but to a larger spiritual community of people. In the New Testament, Revelation through event is just as unmistakable. For Christians, the ultimate event revealing God is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Indeed, for Christians, ultimate revelation is found in the very person of Christ. Paul calls Christ the invisible expression of the invisible God. In the healing, loving, the goodness and peace of Christ, we see God. John Bailey, therefore, wrote, 
In the time of the apostles, no less than in that of the Old Testament prophets, God's revelation was understood as the whole divine action for the salvation of the world. The Heilgeschichte, as the German theologians called it, the mighty deeds of God, which reveal God's nature and will, and above all else, the Christ in whom all former revelation finds its true meaning, and who is, therefore, its fulfillment. This revelation is neither book nor doctrine, but God himself in his historical self-attestation. Revelation is event. In the end, each person, of course, must decide. Using all their own powers and faculties of perception, reason, and discernment, and insight, whether in these biblical events they hear the same voice of God, uh, hear the same voice of God heard by the patriarchs, matriarchs, prophets, sages, poets, mystics, apostles, saints, and martyrs. Hear it speaking to them, disclosing to them the mysterious reality, presence, and character of God, opening for them great vistas of truth, wisdom, and beauty. I can speak only, of course, of my own personal experience in affirming that for me the biblical narrative does indeed speak of revelatory events and speaks of them with a truthfulness that at times has transported me to the region of awe and wonder. The next two recordings will conclude this set of reflections on epistemology, on how Christians know what they know, by looking very briefly in outline form at some of the miscellaneous aspects of what it means to think and to know as a post-critical man or woman, what it may mean to find that restorative uh, place, that restorative place of the second naivete or the second simplicity. <laughs> 